I don't think I've come across a project in education that's had quite that impact. And it's, it's really inspirational because they're doing it all within the current system. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello and welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. My name is James Mannion and I am a massive education geek. I have practiced it and studied it and read and thought and written and talked about education pretty much non-stop for the last 15 years or so. I've also spent enough time in the wonderful world of Edu Twitter to know that I am far from unique in this regard. So this podcast is a little slice of heaven for me, really. It's an opportunity for me to have in-depth conversations with interesting people about all aspects of education, but focusing in particular on ideas for education reform, what we should do more of, what we might perhaps do a little bit less of, and exploring various ideas for how we might tweak the education system so as to improve our chances of surviving what is shaping up to be another incredibly tumultuous century. I'll explain a bit more about the format of the podcast as the show unfolds. And so without further ado, I will introduce my first guest. Deborah Kidd has taught across all settings in education, from secondary to primary to higher education and back again for almost three decades. She now works with schools both in the UK and abroad to develop innovative and exciting approaches to thinking about curriculum. She has a PhD in education and is the author of four books some of which we will talk about in the podcast, and the most recent of which is called A Curriculum of Hope. Debbie also writes an excellent occasional blog called Love Learning. I first became aware of Debbie about seven years ago, and I've followed her work closely ever since. She's an incredibly experienced educator, and I think a truly original thinker with some fascinating insights into where things have gone wrong in the past, and how teachers and school leaders might work together to create a more hopeful, equitable future. This is a fascinating conversation that covers a range of topics, including the pros and cons of exams, some problems with the idea of social mobility, and why we should think instead about social growth, and about Debbie's call for what she refers to as pedagogical activism. Deborah Kidd, thank you for uh, agreeing to be my first ever guest on the Rethinking Education podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Before we get started, I would like to just briefly just take a few moments to outline the format of the podcast, partly for your benefit, but also just to signpost for listeners where the conversation is likely to go and what, what I want to achieve with this podcast. Because um, this is the first episode, right? So education podcasts are an increasingly crowded field. I listen to pretty much all of the ones that I'm aware of. I'm pretty geeky and obsessed with education and I drink it in in whatever form I can. Um, but I want this podcast to explore questions and ideas that other podcasts 
tend not to focus on. And in short, the clues in the name, really, I want to have in-depth conversations with really interesting people about how we might do education differently. As you know, there's a lot of fierce debate around education. And one thing that seems to unite everybody, perhaps the only thing that unites everybody, is that we all want things to be different to how they are. Very few people seem to argue that things should remain exactly as they are. Certainly some people are more conservative than others, but nobody seems to be completely happy with how things are. People's ideas about how they want things to change vary a lot, and that's where things get really interesting. Well, there's this quote that I came across years ago that I've thought about a lot, and it's by H.G. Wells, and he talks about how civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. Um, and in fact, the full quote is, civilization is in a race between education and catastrophe. Let us learn the truth and spread it as far and wide as our circumstances allow for the truth is the greatest weapon we have. I think this is just such a fascinating idea, and I also think it's basically true. It does certainly feel like humanity currently faces a number of very serious, potentially existential threats without wanting to over-egg the pudding. And I really think that education is our best bet at averting catastrophe and saving ourselves from ourselves. And this is why I've been so obsessed with, with education for the last 15 years. And it's also why I've started this podcast. So in the second half of the conversation, I want to get into rethinking education and thinking about ideas about education reform. What's great about the current, currently what we see and what would, would, you, would you like to see more of? What problems do you see and what solutions might there be to those problems? And what can we do individually and collectively to bring about positive change? And we can think about that at the level of the system or policy, at the school level, at the classroom or teacher level, or even at, at the level of learners themselves. But before I get into all that, I want the first part of each podcast to really focus on the guest to find out a little bit about you as a person. And I want to do this because people often talk about education reform as though it's a kind of objective science, that if we just tweak a few variables or make things work a little bit more efficiently, that we can improve the quality or the quantity of the output as though it were a machine. But education is so fascinating precisely because it isn't a machine. And conversations about what works often miss the mark, I think, because they often don't specify what works for whom or to what ends something works or doesn't work. So I want to situate these conversations in the context of people's lives and get into all that fascinating, messy stuff about values and beliefs and what we think education is for or should be for. And to do this, I want to focus on something that Carl Rogers, who is the, the, the forefather of the, the counselling movement, person-centred psychotherapy, referred to as moments of significant learning. And I came across that, first of all, when I was doing a master's number of years ago now, 12 years ago. And the first thing we did, the first piece of work was a learning biography. And we had to sort of draw a timeline of our lives and pull out sort of four or five you know, key moments of significant learning, which he described as learning that has changed your behavior in some way or changed the trajectory of your life or just changed how you think about things. And it could be an experience, a conversation, a person you met, a book you read. We might also talk about what sparked your interest in education and what ideas or experiences have shaped your thinking on education to date. So that sounds that's the general gist. Yeah, does that all sound okay? <laughs> It does, yeah. 
Um, I had a, a quote in my in my first book from George Eliot, and just as you were talking then, it made me think about that in terms of, it, it said, is it not rather what we expect in men that they should have numerous strands of experience lying side by side and never compare them with each other? Um, and I think I think in education we we do that all the time, don't we? We don't take the numerous strands of experience that a human being has, and uh, think of that as a whole. We we try and separate them out. So this is your educational life. This is your family life. These are your friendships. Um, whereas in fact, of course, the, the the reality is that it's a messy, entangled whole, um, and each strand speaks to and informs uh, the other. Yes. Absolutely. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll make some headway towards creating that much more complex picture of what education is and how it's integrated into our lives. And it's not something that, that ends when you're 16 or 18 or 21 or whatever. Just to illustrate this idea of significant learning, there's actually a really good example of it in that, that first book that you wrote in, in Notes from the Front Line. Um, and it's at the back. I don't know if you remember this, but it relates to something called a pupil-driven review it's probably a, it's a long time since you've since you wrote this book, but can you remember what a pupil-driven review is or what it involved? Yes, uh, well, we we established it in in a school in Barnsley that I worked in uh, with um, Howell Roberts. I actually worked with Howell Roberts in in that school, and the head teacher Matthew Milburn wanted to create an assessment system that sat outside of the exam system. Um, and that was really, well, I guess what we just talked about, that idea of reflective of the different strands of children's life and allowing them to articulate how those strands connected, what kinds of learners they were and, and how they wanted to move forward into the next year and the year after. Um, and then we took that work into the last school I worked in uh, in Oldham and what we used to do basically at the end of the year was suspend the timetable for uh, students in July and they would go onto a rotor, a carousel of activities to free up staff to run the pupil driven reviews. And the pupil-driven reviews consisted of, um, well, the children had to prepare, pre-prepare a 15-minute presentation. And that 15-minute presentation had to be a reflection of their learning in and out of school across the year. Um, and then that 15-minute presentation would be delivered to a teacher, their parents, or whichever caregiver they decided to, to allocate to that meeting. And then a small panel of no more than three or four of their peers. And we'd listen to the presentation and then the peers would give a 15 minute feedback. And those peers had been their critical and constructive friends over the year. So the critical friend would point out things that they felt the pupil needed to improve on. That sometimes that was behavioural, sometimes it was cognitive, and sometimes it was social. And the constructive friend would have kept a record over the year of all the positive contributions they'd noticed the child making. So there would be almost a report back to parents and to the child from their peers. And then the, the peers would go and the child, the teacher and the parents would be left in the room for the remaining half, remaining half hour. And the teacher would do things that you do on parents' evening, like go through the data, look at attendance data, look at behavioural data, performance data. Um, but also it was a chance for parents to talk about home life, uh, any other 
difficulties and problems that they felt the child was experiencing and achievements you know it was it was a lovely opportunity sometimes to find out what was going on you know that you had no idea about I I didn't realize that one of my pupils was um, a fencing champion you know and suddenly that came out in in one of the presentations because he didn't want to brag about it um so and then and then targets were set for the following year and then it was repeated the following year so each year you kind of built on the target and you know the the response from parents we did surveys and gathered data afterwards and the response from parents was was really positive the children didn't always recognize the value of it straight away you know there'd, there'd be a bit of moaning of oh I've got to prepare for my PDR why am I doing this and a little bit of anxiety but mm. afterwards they'd talk about a real sense of achievement yeah so, yeah it was it was it was a good way forward I think in uh, you know, he was quite a visionary head teacher. He talked about the idea of uh, assessment for life and assessment for living um, rather than just assessment for learning. Love it. Yeah. Amazing. So I just want to read, if I may, uh, read a bit of your own book back to you because it, it captures this really well. You were talking about this as, I mean, you're essentially talking about a process of really getting to know your your students and, and joining up all of those strands that we were just talking about that are so often separated. Uh, you said you said this is a humanizing assessment and there's not a grade in sight. It follows on from an extended project where they'd written a 2000 word essay in response to a philosophical question with questions like, is life a postcode lottery? Is poverty inevitable? And is the world a fair place? No one can argue that there is not rigor in this process, but there are no grades. Instead, there are meaningful conversations about learning and the peer reporting is an extremely powerful part of that process. The peers follow and report on the child, one on progress, one on skills and one on behaviour and attitude. Believe me, there is more weight behind a child saying, I've stopped sitting next to you because you talk a lot and I can't concentrate. You need to think about how your chatting affects other people, as happened in one session, than there is in a teacher telling a parent that their child is a bit chatty. Hearing it from a peer has a significant impact on both children and parents. In addition, it's clear that seeing their child become a little bit more thoughtful about the world has a significant impact on parents too. And this was the bit that I thought was a, such a beautiful... There's already, you know, significant learning happening there with children learning things from one another. But there was a note that you received from a parent where they'd, they'd sent um, the following quote. The pupil-driven review on poverty last year had a massive impact on her, that's her daughter, emotionally, made her think about becoming an engineer to drill water bores. And this year, she has really questioned her own ability to forgive and under what circumstance. Many thanks for your compassion. There were some, there were some really beautiful moments and, and some of them were fairly intangible. You know, it might just be seeing a dad who seemed a bit brusque and a little bit unemotional at the beginning um, just reach out and put his hand on his child's arm or on his head or, you know, ruffle the hair. And th those little moments of interaction and connection, I think, I think were really, really, really powerful. And particularly in secondary school, we don't get that enough, I don't think. I think a parent's experience is often that primary school doors are open. There's, you often feel like you know the primary school teacher. But in secondary, things become much more distant um, because there are so many teachers and because it's such a big, complex organisation. Yeah. So those moments of connections between the children and the adults, I think, were really significant as well. And then the high level of challenge, those essays, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I, you've just reminded me of, of a child 
who wrote in response to the, is it always possible to forgive? That was one of the questions that they could choose to ask, to answer. And he talked about the difference between justification and forgiveness. So he was, he was exploring Hitler as an example. They could choose any examples from anywhere in the curriculum or outside in the news or in their own experience. But they had to draw a number, number of examples together. And, and he put that he, he thought that it might be possible to forgive, but there were some actions that he felt that he couldn't forgive. And that while he uh, could understand that there may be justifications for the way that somebody turns out like Hitler, and there may be reasons why he felt the way he did, he felt that forgiveness was about letting go of the desire for revenge and he didn't feel he could let go of the desire for revenge when it came to somebody like Hitler. Now for a 12 year old boy to be using a phrase like letting go of the desire for revenge, I think he's really quite, you know, well, not just sophisticated, but it shows a level of understanding and a level of thinking that we don't normally credit children of that age with. And he wasn't, you know, one of your... In, in in terms of progress data, he wasn't one of those children that you know you were seeing flying high, but in terms of his capacity to really engage and grapple with a difficult issue and a complex issue, he was he was way up there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's mind blowing. And this is one of the reasons that I'm such a fan of philosophy for children, because you can just have really fascinating extended conversations. In case anybody who's listening isn't aware, philosophy for children is an approach where you essentially sit in a circle and just come up with a question, a big open-ended philosophical question. You discuss it at length. And it's very different to the traditional method of sort of, you know, the teacher as the, the person who's imparting, you know, curriculum content. This is not about content. And it, it takes quite a while to get used to that transition. It took me ages to get my head around the transition from being a, a teacher to being a facilitator of these conversations. But you do hear some incredible insights into the way that kids think. And like you say, they often have very, very sophisticated, especially with stuff like what you're talking about, with things like morality and issues of fairness and justice. Kids almost seem to intuit that. Like they just seem to sort of get it in their bones. It's not like it's some intellectual. They don't have to study the philosophy of ethics to be able to reason in very sophisticated mm. ways. Mm. Yeah, I think so. And I I wonder if, you know, in part that has something to do with the fact that they are relatively powerless throughout their entire life experience and very highly attuned to how power affects them. <clears throat> um, and as we get older, perhaps we, we lose a little bit of a sense of that as we take control of our own lives to whatever extent we can. So I would like to take you back now, if I may, to the beginning. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what your childhood was like? Um, you were born, was it, you, is it, you grew up in Burnley? Yes, is that right? yeah. Uh, next door to Bury. And so can you tell me a little bit about that? What was your childhood like? A little bit maybe about your family background? What kind of school or schools did you go to? Yeah, of course. Um, well, I, I think I was just born into a, you know, a typically... Burnley working class at that stage family. Uh, my mum and dad were both raised on council estates, but there were lots of council estates in Burnley and it didn't seem particularly stigmatised to be growing up on a council estate. 
Um, and I think their experiences, their childhoods massively impacted on mine because my mum was born into generational poverty, right going back to the Irish potato famine, I mean, just you know, every generation of her family had been in poverty. Uh, to have reached a point where they were given a house was, was amazing. But she tells stories of her and her brothers, you know, having to share one light bulb and take the light bulb from room to room around the house. And, you know, things, things that we just don't imagine. And somebody gave them a piano once and they chopped it up for firewood. That was the only use they could see for a piano. Wow. Um, whereas my dad, who also grew up, in a council estate had found himself there situationally. So his, his mum was a secretary, his dad was in the Navy and, you know, through happenstance and, and alcoholism and various other things, they ended up uh, in poverty, but always with a sense, particularly from his mum, that education was important. So whereas my mum was getting the message of you get out of school as fast as you can and you get a job and you bring money into the house, for my dad, the message was get yourself educated. And he passed his 11 plus. And although I'm not a fan of um, grammar schools, because I think actually the system that lifted him up held my mum down, you know, so one was a yeah. beneficiary and another one certainly wasn't. Um, it did mean that he grew up with the sense that education mattered. And even though he left school and ended up working as a bookkeeper, and then, you know, that he lost that job and they had periods of, of, of real difficulty, that mantra of education matters was drilled into me right from the start. And even from my mum, my mum would say, don't be like me. That was her mantra. Don't be like me. Um, so I was born into a little terraced house that they'd managed to scrape the money together for. It had an outside toilet. They were struggling to pay the bills, couldn't always afford food. But my dad studied and he qualified as an accountant. And within... 13 or 14 years from that kind of beginning he was driving a Volvo we had a nice house we had a bidet never mind a bathroom inside we had a bidet in the bathroom no one knew what it was for but we were all really <laughs> pleased with it and um you know and, and things were very very different and suddenly we were middle class and yet all my cousins my uncles my aunties were still in the council estate and still in poverty and I think that's a really weird situation to be in as a child because you, you are constantly aware of the fact that there's a different reality for other people. Um, so I think, that, I think that really shaped me. This I've got a very heightened sensitivity of how hard life is for some people because I've seen it in my own family. And then, you know, I went to the local primary school um, in Burnley. And then we did have the grammar school system, but my year was the first year where it went comprehensive. Um, so I, I didn't have to take the 11 plus. I went to, I ended up being allocated to the school that had been the secondary modern. So our year was the first year where any of the teachers had had to even consider teaching O level, uh, the, you know, old money O levels. Right. And, um, and that was really interesting as well. I mean, it was brutal. You know, there, there were some really brutal moments in secondary school. But you saw um, another way of learning. And I remember being really envious because I'd obviously, you know, I, I ended up being put into 
or labelled the academic stream. So there were certain subject options that weren't available for me. And I remember sitting, you know, in a history lesson or whatever it was, looking out the window and being really envious that some of the kids were outside doing the mechanics course and taking a car engine apart, or they were doing like gardening or they were doing this, that and the other. And I guess my question at that stage was, why can't we do both? Why do we have to like be separated into these ways? Um, And I managed to sort of get a cluster of O-levels. And then um, I wanted to do music. That was my big thing. I loved doing music. And my music teacher, who I might talk about a little bit more detail later on, but my music teacher said to me, said to my dad, um, she really needs a good A-level teacher and there's there's nothing around here that is good enough. She needs to go to this school in Blackburn if she wants to teach A-levels. And it was a private school if she wants to study music A-level. So they put their hands in, my mum and dad found the money and they sent me to this private school for two years. So that, going from a secondary modern effectively to what was a former grammar school that had ended up as a private school, that was quite a mind-blowing shift for me because I'd spent five years trying to play down any, any attempt to be clever or to shine. And then suddenly, you know, there were all these people for whom it, it just didn't cross their minds that you might not want to do your best or work hard or hand your homework in on time or all those kinds of things. And I think although the teaching wasn't different and the, in fact, you know, I think the teachers in many ways were better in the secondary modern. They were, you know, really aspirational for us and really trying to push us. But the networks that people had just blew my mind you know if you wanted a Saturday job or an internship or some work experience or you wanted to talk to somebody about a possibility for a career in the private school it was all there on tap whereas you know I hung around on Stoops Estate in Burnley with my mates and their parents who didn't have jobs so you know there was no one I could talk to there so um I think it's really made me think long and hard for a long time now about how how we open up access of opportunity to children, but without emptying our towns out. And I know we'll come on to that a bit later on, but, you know, the, the, the idea of building inherent pride in a community and not dividing communities has become quite important to me because I really saw the haves and have nots as I was growing up. Yeah. Wow. That's quite a fascinating journey. So you, you, it feels like you saw like that, that, that idea of how the other half live, right? That you that you had this very sort of particular particular experience of childhood, and then all of a sudden you were exposed to totally another way of of, of living, another way of, of of also being educated. Yeah. Um, okay. And so, would you like to to talk a little bit more? You mentioned a teacher there that you that you um, found particularly inspirational. Yeah, I think. Um... I mean, I'd, 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 for, for as long as I can remember, I'd always been interested in music. I was one of those kids who'd sit on the bottom of the stairs and pretend that the stairs were a piano and, you know, things like this. And, and my mum and dad were aware of it, but when I was young, they couldn't afford to do anything about it. So by the time, you know, one of the first things my dad did when he qualified was buy a piano and get me piano lessons. And, um, and it was a bit of an unfortunate choice because the piano teacher turned out to be a child abuser, but <laughs> that oh wasn't great. <laughs> so I had about five years of this terrible secret going on. 
And then I decided to do O-level music. And so in year 10, I ended up in Dorothy Bowling's class. She had no idea what was going on, um, but she was so passionate about music and she saw something in me uh, that I don't, I don't know what it was. I don't, I don't know. I don't think she had an idea what was going on, but she would take me to the Halle. I remember the first time I ever saw a live orchestra was because she'd taken us to the Halle and we heard Rachmaninoff's piano concerto and I was just my head exploded and I would spend every spare moment in that music room you know I'd I'd run percussion groups for the younger children I'd do anything to avoid being anywhere else other than in the music room and during my O level when you know I she said to me do you want to take music on further and I said yes she said but you need to do grades and you've been studying piano now and you can play really (laughs) you can play well but you've not got any grades behind you and you can't even think about applying to university to do music if you haven't got your piano grades, so you need to get those. She said, I don't think that your piano teachers are right for you. And she got my dad in and said, you need to get her another teacher. And in that single act, she freed me from what had been going on. And it was, I don't, I don't think she'll ever know or understand how she changed my life. It was, it was quite incredible. But the, the downside of the private school was that the music teacher I ended up with was a bit of a misogynist. And he, um, the first thing he said to me when I joined that A-level class was, name me a female composer. And I couldn't. It was a boys' school that took girls in the sixth form, so he was used to teaching boys. And I was the only girl doing A-level music. And, uh, and I couldn't name a female composer. And he turned around to the class, or the boys in the class, and said, that's why women and music don't mix. And I just sat <laughs> a bit gobsmacked. And I kind of, I worked, I tried really hard. I worked really hard at it. And I had to pick up a second instrument because that was the other thing. If you needed, if you wanted to go to university to study music, you needed to at least be at grade seven or eight piano and at least grade five in another instrument. So I started clarinet lessons with a clarinet teacher. And I know this sounds like almost like fiction, but the clarinet teacher um, decided he'd teach me individually. So I was supposed to be in a group, but he he said, no, no, we, we need to accelerate you through these grades and I'm going to give you one-to-one lessons. And those one-to-one lessons involved breathing exercises with his hands on my chest. <laughs> Oh, and I was thinking, this, this isn't right. So I reported him. I was a bit more confident at that stage and a bit more strident. So I went and reported him to the head, who said to me, well, he asked me questions about whether I had any sexual experience, whether I'd seen any men naked. I, I think he was trying to ascertain whether I was just naive and overreacting, but the questions were so right. inappropriate. And I remember just walking out of his office and down the corridor and and just having no idea what to do because I thought, I don't want to go back to the clarinet lesson. I don't even want to go back to my A-level music lesson. I've reported it and they sacked him. And I went back to my A-level music lesson and in front of the boys, this A-level teacher said, she's the reason we don't have a clarinet teacher anymore. And I've told you once and I'll tell you again, women and music don't mix. And I just stood up and walked out and that was it. That was the end of my level music. (laughs) So I picked ancient history instead and I enjoyed that, but it left me with a kind of chasm because that was my, that was where I was going. 
And then suddenly I was like, what am I going to do at university? So, but I did English and it was fine. <laughs> mind-blowing did you did you keep an interest in music outside of that or did it turn you off music like wanting to play instruments it really it switched me off for a very long time in fact I didn't touch a piano for years um and then I bought one a few years ago and just started picking it up again um and I'm, I'm starting to rediscover it but yeah it, it was it was almost like a shutter came down just mind-blowing like it's such a weird thing to think like that women and music don't mix like because <laughs> that's a very particular question name me a female composer there might be you know there might be reasons why there haven't been a, a very many female composers partly because of people like him being at the gateways of the music world you know but yeah. there's it's yeah. not there's a shortage of evidence of absolute genius female musicians throughout history like he must just be doing intellectual gymnastics to maintain that belief I know. And, and in some ways, it was a failing of everything that had gone before that I'd not <coughs> encountered these women, because of course they existed. But, um, you know, the canon that you get introduced to, and it, we talk about this a lot in education at the moment, don't we? The canon we get introduced to gives you a concept of, of who achieves in the world and what kinds of people achieve in the world. And if you don't see yourself represented, and I'm just looking at that from a gender perspective, but we can look at it from a race perspective, you know, all kinds of perspectives. Mm. If you don't see yourself represented, you don't necessarily think that that's a possibility. Yes. Yeah. So Dorothy Bolwyn, did you say she's called? Yeah, Mrs. Bowling. Bowling. Mm. And did you ever have any contact with her later on? We, we stayed in touch for a little while. In fact, up to going to university, she was furious about what had happened uh, with the A-level music. And then we just lost touch. And yeah, so I don't know. don't know what she's up to now, but she was certainly inspirational. Yeah. And that's something that's really interesting, isn't it? Because Mrs. Bowling probably spent her time, like all teachers do, sort of thinking about her to-do list and marking books and planning lessons and like freeing a child or like changing the trajectory of a, of a student's whole life, saving them, as you say. Um, that's not the sort of thing that comes up in a performance management review, is it? Like This is something that teachers are in the business of, or at least that we can be in the in the business of, of changing lives in really profound ways. But I think it's something that you talk about a lot, that actually we're not valuing what's really valuable here and we're sort of mm. fetishising, you know, data and things that are really quite um, detrimental to that to that broader, more humanistic, um, you know, agenda. Yeah. OK, so are there any other sort of key moments that spring out from your life, um, moments of significant learning people that you met along the way, books that you read that you really blew your mind or that changed your thinking about education, um, either as a human being or as an educator? Um, I, th I think it was quite significant for me when, when I did eventually end up being a teacher, which, you know, I'd, I'd kind of parked with the music in some ways. I'd wanted to be a music teacher. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be Mrs. Bowling. That's what I wanted to be. And... Um, and because that had gone and I wasn't really sure what else to do, and I picked my next favourite subject, which, which was English literature, I went to university to do that instead, really enjoyed it. But the, the conversations that chipped away at me at university were around the idea that teaching was a cop-out, that if you wanted to be a teacher, you were somehow failing to achieve something better. And I, you know, a, a well-meaning tutor at university said to me, oh, come on, you can do better than that. And and so I ended up going into advertising and PR. 
um, which, you know, I, I quite enjoyed the sort of champagne Fridays and all that kind of glitz and glamour and all that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, you had no autonomy. You had no choice over the clients you took. So I was all really happy working on the Lynx anti-fur campaign or relaunching Barclays after they pulled out of South Africa and all that kind of stuff was going on because they were they were clients that were politically aligned. But then when your agency gets the Conservative Party uh, election campaign or the water privatisation campaign, you're asked to work on those, you're not so happy. And, and I suppose there was a bit of a pivotal moment there thinking, I want, I don't have, my moral compass is adrift. I don't feel that what I'm doing is, is valuable. And going back to that idea of I really want to teach, um, and so I, th I think, you know, it, the teaching, the idea for teaching came from altruism and I loved literature and I thought that's what I'll do. I'll become an English teacher. And, uh, and I went and trained. Uh, well, I had to delay my training because I got pregnant, <laughs> had a baby in between. So that was a bit of a pivotal moment. Um, but when I trained, I think I went into the world as a teacher as quite a strong traditionalist in the sense that uh, I had all these altruistic aims, but I felt that knowledge was in my head and, and that my job was to extract it and explain it and pop it into other children's heads. Mm. And I wanted them to be as passionate about literature as I was, and I wanted them to enjoy it. But basically, it was a transmission model that I was aware of because really that's all I'd received as well. And it was um, being introduced to... I got, I got my first job in a sixth form college and uh, they they couldn't offer me full-time hours. And I was a single mum and I really needed the salary of full-time hours. So they said, what else can you teach? And I said, I'd be happy to do some drama. I'd done drama at university. I'd kind of done it as my second subsidiary subject for my PGCA. So I said, I can, I can offer some drama. And again, I was a little bit sort of performative theatre transmission model. And I was sent on a course with a woman called Dorothy Hethcott. And I think it was one of the luckiest moments of my life, just sitting with her and the people that were also on the course and just seeing how teaching could be completely different um, and how it could be much more sort of uh, rooted in problem solving and in this giving children this sense of autonomy and ownership over their learning. And it was absolutely transformational for me. And I think, you know, the look of having that really early in my career trying to translate it into an A-level context, which, you know, is not easy in itself, but was possible. And then working my way through, you know, I ended up in secondary and then primary. Um, never did I find that her methods and her ideas and her principles were irrelevant to any setting. And it didn't matter whether they were 18-year-olds or four-year-olds, it was all applicable. So I think that was hugely pivotal for me. Mm, this is Dorothy Hethcutt of Mantle of the Expert fame. Yeah, and that was just one strand of her work. But she was probably, you know, people talk about the idea of... Um, progressive educators not being interested in knowledge she was probably the most knowledgeable person I've ever encountered she she never watched television she read she gathered information there was there was no, nothing that that woman didn't seem to know but she knew that there were other ways of bringing knowledge into a curriculum bringing knowledge into a child's mind she called children crucibles that it was about stirring the knowledge um, and wow. yeah, it was it was transformational for me. 
I love that metaphor. It's sort of this alchemy, the recognizing the mm-hmm. alchemy. There's something, and some, somehow that the education emerges from all of those little bits of like you transmit the knowledge, and that's almost like the raw material that, that you work with. But then there's some, there is some straight. I love that some strange alchemy. You stir the the crucible, and and magical things emerge from that mm-hmm. pot. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so you had quite an unusual teaching career as well, didn't you? Because you taught, uh, so you, you trained as an English teacher and then you moved into primary and then into uh, higher education. I, ju- I just bounced. I've bounced around. So, you know, there were times when I was working in two settings at the same time. There were times when I've had one foot in secondary, one foot in primary, one foot in primary, one foot in higher education. Um, so, I, and I've never really gone up the system I've always kind of moved across it because I I always think I I remember meeting a a neuroscientist called Andrew Curran he's a brain surgeon a children's a pediatric brain surgeon and I remember him saying that he didn't just want to operate on children's brains he wanted to understand their minds so he also qualified you know went and got the qualifications to be a child psychologist as well and and I think I, I had a little bit of a similar I want to understand it all I want to know what the four-year-old does, the six-year-old, the eight-year-old, the 18-year-old. Um, and I never really found myself sort of like trying to climb up a promotional ladder. But then that leads to its own frustrations because you find yourself with vast sort of reservoir of experience and very little influence. And I think that became quite frustrating for me. Yes, Although that has changed a little bit in recent years, because when I when I first became aware of you, I think it was when lots of people were getting interested in blogging and Twitter and so on in around sort of 2013. Um, and that, I think that the first time that I became aware of you was that you'd, I think maybe I read a few of your blogs and then you wrote a piece about Michael Gove's curriculum reforms that, that blew up in a really big way and went viral and sort of turned into a bit of a weird sort of petition where there was like thousands of people, myself included, all sort of signing their names in the comments beneath the, beneath the blog, uh, which ended up getting lots of press coverage. And then before long, you were going toe-to-toe with Nick Gibb on Channel 4 News, which I remember thinking was an incredibly impressive thing to do for someone who was presumably not used to that sort of media spotlight. What What are your memories of of that of that time? Oh, it was it was mental. It, we I was working uh, in in a secondary full time in a secondary school at the time, and it's when we were trying to get all the PDR and all that kind of you know sort of different ways of assessing children together, and. And I was tired, like teachers are, you know, doing that 60, 70 hour week that you're doing, absolutely exhausted. And here's this man appearing on Question Time talking about us as enemies of promise and blobs and and, and effectively kind of, I felt trying to undo some of the things that, that were really important to me, like, you know, seeing the whole child and, and all those kinds of things. And and so to try and just get it off my chest, and you know, I just set up a blog. I hadn't been blogging for very long. I, I barely knew how to use the technology, but just to get it out off my chest, I just wrote an open letter, and I said, "If you agree with me, pop your name in the comments box." So I spent my entire Easter holiday taking the names out of the comments box and popping them <laughs> onto a document until, bless him, Tim Taylor contacted me and said, you know, there's a, there's a thing called Google uh, Docs and you can do this a bit more easily. Um, by which time I think I'd already transcribed about 2,000 of them. 
so I did this letter and obviously it was gaining traction on Twitter. And, and at that point, you know, I had a couple of hundred followers. I wasn't a, a big thing on Twitter or anything like that. But the following numbers started going up and this started getting shared. And then I got a phone call, I think, uh, towards the end of the Easter holiday, maybe on the Thursday or Friday, got a phone call from uh, Sean Griffiths at the Times saying, we'd like to run this story. We want it as an exclusive. And I kind of went, OK, I'll, I'll let you know. I'll think about it. And I didn't really know what she meant by an exclusive. I didn't really know. I was completely, you know. Um, but what I what I'd intended to do with it was to take it to Parliament because as it happened, I'd been invited to a roundtable discussion uh, with Mick Waters, who had just written his book, Thinking Aloud in Schools. And I knew I'd got permission from a head teacher to go to this meeting. So I knew that I was going to be in London at the House of Commons on the Monday. And so my intention had always been to print off this massive petition and take it. And Mick had said to me, well, Ian Mearns from the Education Select Committee will be at the meeting so you can hand it to him. And, and I hadn't really thought about it being in the media at all. And so I'd, I've got this message from the Times and then the Independent contacted me and said, you know, we'd like to run a story on it. And I said, oh, oh OK, uh, I'm not really sure. I've had this message. I'm not really sure what it means. And and they said, well, just be careful, just be careful. And just those words kind of stuck with me. And then, of course, uh, I get a message. Sean Griffiths said they were going to print it on the Saturday or, or it might have even been the Sunday times. And then at the very last minute, she contacted me and said, sorry, something else has cropped up. We're not printing the story. And I think, I, I don't know for sure, but I think it was quite deliberate to try and hold the stories an exclusive and then bury it. Ooh. Because I hadn't understood what an exclusive was, I'd already shared it with the independent. <laughs> <And so, laughs> And so I, I thought that it would be in the independence education pages, you know, something on like page 48, a little column in a corner. I, that's what I imagined. And I traveled down, my brother lives in High Wycombe, so I traveled down on the train to, no, I'd driven down to his house and then got the train into London on the Monday morning, went to Mick's, Mick's event. And while I was there, I got a phone call from Channel 4 News saying, um, we'd like you to come on to talk about uh, your petition and the article that's in the Independent today. And I thought, blimey, they're trawling through the education pages for news stories. <laughs> it must be a slow news day. And it wasn't until I got to the station again um, and saw that my face was on the front page of the Independent that's amazing. This is front page news. I <laughs> know, it was front page news. And I just, I just remember feeling so embarrassed. Um, Channel 4 sent a car for me. I ended up being picked up. You know, and I'm, I'm tired. The, the, these are te your teachers are tired. Uh, and I got into the studio. I'd never done anything like it. But here's Nick Gibb in front of me. And, and the things he's saying, I'm just thinking, but that's not what teaching's like. That's not what's happening in schools. It's just not the reality. Yeah. So I kind of got a little bit lost in just dealing with the argument. I think I was nervous for a couple of minutes, but then I was just like, hang on a minute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sort of went for it. And, and it was just, it was just bizarre. I remember going, because I obviously had to make my way back home. And then I had to be in the classroom at, you know, nine o'clock the following morning. Um, and I remember just walking into that classroom 
and feeling so relieved just to close the door behind me and think, right, all I have to do now is teach. And I know how to do that. That's fine. I don't have to deal with that. And then the first thing one of the kids went was, hey, miss, we saw you on the news last night. (laughs) 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 Then they wanted to talk about what was wrong with education. They had had some pretty strong views themselves. Amazing. it It was crazy. Yeah. I mean, you certainly came across really well. I think it's still on YouTube, that clip. But your willingness to do it, I think, was just a reflection of how well you know your stuff. You know, you've been teaching for 20 years by that time, I think. And like you say, you've been teaching at primary, secondary, at university. Um, And since then, you've done loads of other stuff. You've organized national conferences. Like you say, you're now an international consultant. You picked up a PhD along the way. Um, and you've published four books, I believe, is it four now? So there's there's yeah, notes from yeah. the front line. There's Becoming Mobius, which was sort of about your, your doctorate, wasn't it? Um, mm-hmm. Which is a great title. I'm in a, I'm in a band and we've, we've wrote a song called Becoming Mobius because it's, oh, really? it's just such a good metaphor. Um, yeah, I'll send it you. It's actually quite a good tune. Um, then there's Uncharted Territories with Hal Roberts yeah. um, and A Curriculum of Hope the latest one um but it's your first book notes from the front line that i think is the most pertinent to this podcast um just in case any listeners haven't come across this i read it at the time and i read it again recently it's an absolutely brilliant read and it has quite an unusual cover it says on the front we are at the time i write this in need of a revolution in education this is a strong statement and i don't use it lightly um can you think back and think about what it, what was it, if you can sort of encapsulate it, what was it that prompted you to make such a bold statement at that time? I, th- I think it was um, seeing how constrained teachers were and, and how fearful teachers were becoming. Um, and I don't think it, it was, I think, exacerbated and exaggerated by Gove, but I think it was happening before that I think from you know league tables sats um literacy hour numeracy hour this kind of teacher of as technician model had crept in to the system and the fear of Ofsted you know whether or not it was you've got to have a lesson objective on the board or you should be doing group work or you shouldn't be talking for more than 10 minutes or you shouldn't you know there were all these that what, what Ofsted said were myths, but actually for many teachers were becoming realities of observations. And then, you know, that just, it just, it, it was just the same dog only washed when Gove came in. It's just that the narrative flipped and you could talk for an hour if you wanted to, but God forbid you should use group work or God forbid you should do this, that and the other. Um, and it, it felt like no one was allowed to be their authentic teacher self anymore unless they fit the dominant mould of whatever Ofsted were deciding or the government were deciding at that time. And I think one of the breaking points for me was working, it, it was my last job was working in a school where my children had attended and still attend. Um, I was a teacher in that school and my eldest son who'd left at that point had had an English teacher who was extraordinary. I mean, his subject knowledge, his his passion for the subject and his humanity for the kids was, was just extraordinary. He was the sort of teacher, you know, te- when people say t- teachers are legends in schools, mm. uh, he was that legend. It, he could not walk down the street in our village or our town without somebody calling out, <laughs> even adults calling out who he taught 20 years before. He always had cues of kids down the corridor who wanted to go and talk to him. And when my son was sitting, his 
GCSEs in the last few weeks before GCSE, his wife died. And yet he still carried on through all that, sending them copious notes, marking their essays, encouraging them to send work in, grief stricken, but still utterly committed. And those kids loved him. They knew he was really into his music and they knew that his hero was Johnny Marr, his guitarist hero was Johnny Marr. They managed to source uh, a guitar and get it signed by Johnny Marr for him. They, they just loved wow. him. So this human being is working in the same department that I am. And I'm a little bit in awe of him. But my job is to be sent members of staff um, for, you know, a little bit of, uh, professional development if they have failed an observation or not done so well in an observation. And I find him sitting in front of me in, a, in, a, in my office, distraught because, you know, he's, he's been through an observation. He's been told he talks too much and that he, you know, his lesson was failing on, on a couple of counts. And he's asking me how he can be a better teacher. And I just said, I can't, there's nothing I can tell you about being a better teacher. You're one of the best teachers I've ever encountered. You teach differently to me, yes, but you are an amazing teacher. And all I could say to him was the wheels will turn and, and this time we'll, we'll, we'll move on. But I, I remember going home and thinking, we just can't carry on like this. We're going to hemorrhage staff. We're going to hemorrhage those beautiful mavericks, you know, who might seem really traditional one minute and then the next minute they're getting their guitar out with the kids. The, the, the people who don't just follow the structures. And I think that's what we've seen in the past 15 years, really. Um, we've, we've seen a, the, the beginnings of a hemorrhaging of, of teachers who have all the potential to be the Mrs. Bowlings of the world, but, but just find themselves alienated from their sense of purpose. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of, I always try to be generous in my thinking about why things are going in the way that they're going. And I think that it sort of comes from a good place in that people want to improve outcomes for kids. And so they think, right, we'll introduce standards so that we can make it so that everybody teaches to, in a, like, to these particular standards. And it might be effective at bringing some teachers who are really struggling. It might be helpful for them to have standards. And you say, this is just to break it down in very bite-sized ways. This is what good teaching looks like. But when you use that across the board, then it has it has the effect of, like you say, just squashing the all of the mavericks and putting people um, all into the same sort of box. Mm -hmm. um, and it has yeah. and, and the, the fear, the fear, I think, is is very real. As you know, we've just written a book called Fear is the Mind Killer. And that was mainly the, the reason that we called it that was mainly about the fear of failure that kids have in schools. But in the final chapter, we talk about the fear that is also quite endemic within the within the teaching profession. If you Google the word teachers and fear, you get like hundreds of thousands of hits of newspaper articles talking about fear in the profession, about bullying of, of teachers by other teachers and so on. Um, and there are very, very real, very real, real concerns around that, I think. Um, you also wrote, so it's, it's quite a dark part of the of the conversation, this, because you also wrote in that book, there's a line where you said, there have been no darker times in education in my memory, and I've taught for over 20 years. You wrote that in 2013. And then when we spoke yesterday, you said that you think things have gotten even worse since then, in some ways. Well, I, th I think they have, and I think... 
I, I felt that, and you know, I'm not being party political here, but I felt that under the Labour the Labour government we had, they made some mistakes in the attempt to achieve the standards you're talking about. So, but they started to recognise them. They removed the literacy hour. They removed the numeracy hour. They they gave teachers a little bit of autonomy back. They were moving towards the Rose Review. Mick Waters had done the Key Stage Three curriculum, and it was as if the errors of perhaps being too prescriptive and too judgmental were starting to be unpicked and there was a bit of hope on the horizon there. And then, of course, we got Michael Gove coming in and and it's just a really sad situation. We find ourselves in short-termist politics where new ministers, even just new ministers within the same party, feel like they have to make their mark and there's suddenly a new focus and a shift in this and that. But obviously, Michael Gove was probably the most influential, whether you want, you know, keep that fairly neutral, (laughs) uh, influential education minister we've ever had. And I found that it was very dark because what started to crop up in education at that point was really strong divisions and a sense of you're either with us or you're against us. You're either this teacher or you're that teacher. And these binaries became very judgmental and quite nasty uh, in the way that they were being weaponized against people. And I think that was the darkness that I really struggled with. And, And that's not got any better. And I think rather than an education department that serves the system, we've got an education department that um, acts as surveillance over the system and, 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 and isn't interested in any voices that don't accord with its own ideological view. And, and I've not encountered that before. Um, I can't remember a time in the last three decades where that has happened in the way that it happens now. Um, And and it's really damaging. I think it's really damaging for people's mental health and well-being. It's damaging for kids because that pressure always gets pushed down. You know, the more pressure you put on senior leaders, the more they put on teachers, the more that teachers put on children. Um, and, And we're seeing, you know, significant fractures I think across society and across like just the general mental health of society um, that are rooted in that attitude of you're either with us or you're against us. Yes. Yeah. I think that, I think that that's a fairly, a fairly um, accurate depiction of what happens and you only have to look at sort of the sorts of things that happen on edgy Twitter where there's teachers who are sort of really at each other's throats quite often. And there's, there's, um, there is a lot of intolerance. There's very sort of tribal behavior. And sometimes it's sort of quite mocking and playful, but it can get really nasty. Um, and it just seems to be symptomatic of a system that is under this, the kind of strain that you're talking about, that we're not, we're not okay here. Like we're not, mm-hmm. we're not okay. Um, and so it's important to have this conversation. It's a difficult conversation to have. People might not want to think about the idea that, you know, education was in a dark place seven years ago and now it's even darker. And some people might also, you know, disagree, and I suppose, and point to various ways in which they think that things are getting better or that have gotten better in recent years. Um, but it's an important conversation to have because, you know, if it's true that civilization is in a race between education and catastrophe and things really are heading in in the wrong direction and it's important that we take a hard-headed look at what's going on and how we might get things on a more positive footing 
which is what I want to achieve with this podcast. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit later, but I don't want this podcast to be all doom and gloom either. Mm. I won't have that because um, it's also important in rethinking education to double down on the things that are really good, you know, to what do we want to mm. do more of as well as what do we want to see less mm. of. So I want to turn to some positive things now. I just want to ask you about any examples that you've seen that, you've, that, you, that you're aware of people that, are, that people are doing currently either individually or collectively, that you think is really positive? Mm. Oh, I can think of loads. And, and you know, and I'm, I, I, I sort of talk about darkness and, and, and fragmentation, but I'm always really optimistic. I mean, a curriculum of hope is about the idea that there's always optimism and hope in whatever system you're working within. Um, and there are, there are so many things going on that are just amazing. And I also think we, all, we should recognise, and it's right to recognise, the fact that the conversation that emerged out of those early Govian days about the importance of knowledge was a good thing. Mm. And there had been, we can't deny it, there had been conversations around, oh, we don't need knowledge, we can just Google it, we can just do this, that and the other. And and, and most people would deny they ever bought into that idea now, but it, they were there, they were present. We were, you know, people people were... And I, I, didn't, I don't think I ever felt comfortable with it because I think at, at heart... I've never quite let go of that trainee teacher who who really liked just putting knowledge into kids' heads. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever quite let go of it. I've just learned to do it in a different way. Um, so I, I think that's something to be welcomed. And I also think the conversation around curriculum is to be welcomed at the moment. And both of those conversations have allowed teachers to think, do you know what, yes, knowledge is important. We really need to attend to it. We need to make sure we're nailing it down. But, you know, we also want this broad entitlement to experience and curriculum and those conversations are positive so I mean the thing that the the example that springs to mind that comes to me immediately is the Ignite Zoo project in Chester and it started with this visionary head teacher Andy Moore um, who's now CEO of a mat and but at that time he was the head of a teaching school and the head of a primary school and I think basically what Andy had done is he'd gone to Chester Zoo one day with his own kids you know in the holidays and just thought what an amazing educational resource why is our school not making more use of this it's not far away and from that question he's built a network now of 85 schools who've been involved in this project and the zoologists are effectively co-teachers of those children the children go into the zoo one day a year and they take it over. They do the jobs of the zoo rangers. They give the talks to the public about the animals. They've done all the talk, you know, the, the, the research on it. And there are 23,000 kids now who've gone out into the world as passionate conservationists. They've gone, you know, on. Um, they Each year group chooses a different focus, whether it's palm oil or whether it's tigers in Sumatra or whether it's elephant poaching, whatever. And they really research that. It can be bees and wildlife corridors for hedgehogs. It can be anything. But they really research that conservation issue. They gather the knowledge. They look at it from through the lenses of all their different subjects and they become campaigners. So they've made significant changes. They've planted whole forests. They've um, they they worked with Chester Zoo to make Chester the first the city's first sustainable palm oil city. So no restaurant, bar, hotel, business in Chester will sell or serve any product that isn't made with sustainable palm oil. 
a group of year two children, six, seven-year-olds, took the CEO of Iceland to task about his banning palm oil policy and explained to him that yield per hectare for palm oil was far better than some of the alternatives, so that his policy should be around sustainability and not around banning. And he changed his policy on the on the say-so of six- and seven-year-olds. I mean, in terms of empowering change in the world and believing that you can be the change in the world, I don't think I've come across a project in education that's had quite that impact. And it's it's really inspirational because they're doing it all within the current system and yes. not having to step outside, break rules, fragment the system. It's all possible within it as it, as it exists. Yeah. And like you say, there's a, there's a sort of people talk about the hidden curriculum a lot. The hidden messages that are often in the, the in the curriculum is that education is something that happens in classrooms, that the teacher tells you what to do, that the answer is in the textbook, you know, and all that stuff. And in this case, the, the, the hidden messages, or maybe they're made more explicit, but the messages are, you know, you can make a change in the world, you can make a difference. Education is connected to the outside world. You matter. This matters. It, it sets a very different, the, the unspoken agenda of what's happening there. It, it's going to inculcate very different mindsets among those kids, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think I think we've just we've just got to be really careful we don't oversimplify everything. And I think there's a there's a human tendency to want to simplify. We 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 don't like complexity. We like simple patterns, and we were drawn to them, uh, even though we are complex beings ourselves. So like, we're always caught in that 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 bind. But we, Howell talks about, Howell Roberts, who I, I work with a lot, he, he talks about encountering the work of Ian Mentor on his master's course. And Ian Mentor writes about these different levels of teaching. Um, there's the effective teacher who, you know, does their job, ticks all the boxes, is a safe pair of hands. Every head teacher wants at least their teachers to be effective. Um, and but there are levels beyond that. There's the reflective teacher who really gets to know the children individually, adapts their practice to suit each child or each class. There's the uh, inquiring teacher who then goes and looks at research, and maybe attends conferences, kind of develops their professional sense of persona outside of the classroom. And then there's the transformational teacher who sees teaching as a vehicle for changing the world and changing the lives of children. And the effective teacher is the baseline to build from. Whereas I think what we've got in education at the moment is the effective teacher being presented to us as the gold standard, the only yeah. thing we need. And I do have some you know, political questions about that in the churn and burn sort of um, strategy of get teachers in, get them effective, they burn out, move them on, get another lot of effective teachers in. And there isn't really a sense of trying to grow that transformational teacher. And I, I also, you know, it worries me when I see in the SRE guide things like we shouldn't be introducing children to anti-capitalist thoughts or we shouldn't be introducing them to extremist groups and then you know groups like Extinction Rebellion and Black Lives Matter are considered to be extremist groups so if we're starting to become the thought police the controllers of children and we're just saying all we want teachers to do is keep their heads down and you know be the effective teacher tick all the boxes do the job stay in it maybe for five or ten years so your pension doesn't get too big move them on bring in another lot We've got a very fragile system then, and we've got a fragile we've got a system that is designed only to protect the status quo and not to effect change because it takes a lot of experience to start to imagine the possibilities of of how things could be different 
It certainly does. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask you for one more um, positive, maybe something from your own career, something that has made you want to leap in the air or jump for joy. Oh, I think, I mean, we've already talked about the PDR, but that idea of children having their voices being, you know, feeling like they, that they are presently powerful in the education system as it exists. And I, I mean, I talk in, in that first book about pedagogical activism, you know, in spite of all the darkness and everything else, I feel that when I close a door and I'm with the children and a TA or whoever happens to be watching, I don't mind, at that time, we are pedagogical activists. We're unpicking information. We're asking deep questions. We're exploring it. And the freedom to do that exists. It's there. It's there for us to, to do. And I think that's a real positive because I think in spite of, you know, whatever we hear and whatever we're told, and, you know, whatever messages we get in terms of we have to do this for Ofsted or whatever, the reality is that for 98% of your teaching life, you are in control of that classroom. You're the, you know, you're, you're the person who decides what goes on in that space. And you can do all kinds of really exciting, interesting things. And, and the relationships that adults have with children, you know, is, is by far and away the single most positive thing that happens in a classroom. We've learned it in lockdown, haven't we? You know, I saw, I saw my own son in lockdown receiving various bits of online learning and I remember he got one little video clip that was pre-recorded, a video clip from his English teacher, lovely Mr. Twig, I'm going to name him. Um, and it started with, um, I, what a shame, year nine, you're on self-isolation. I'm absolutely gutted. I was looking forward to teaching you today. And I can't believe I'm not going to see you for two weeks, but here, here's what we're going to do. And his body language perked up and lifted with that moment of humanity. Whereas, you know, he was sent an online lesson by an anonymous teacher for an organization by somebody else. And he just kind of slumped and went through the motions of it. And I don't think he was engaged at all because the relationship matters. And every single teacher in every single classroom has the capacity to build these amazing relationships with children. We're going to move into the problems and solutions part of the conversation now. <clears throat> and I want to take this at three sort of levels, at the, at the level of system or policy, first of all. Secondly, at the level of schools. And I know you're interested in ideas around social mobility and the, the role that schools can play in sort of helping develop people's thinking around that. And at the classroom level, and that's maybe where we'll get into the pedagogical activism. So at the policy or system level, um, I know that you're keen to talk about about exams, and exams are on everybody's mind at the moment. There's lots of lots of debate about it. So recently, Scotland and Wales have decided to say we're not going to do exams next year. We're going to do some sort of teacher task, some sort of assessed task. It's not quite clear exactly how that's going to work yet. And in the UK, there seems to be this quite fierce, and certainly in some quarters, a quite fierce resistance to um, to getting rid of exams. And so that's going to be an interesting conversation to have, I think. I think that we, we're seeing an example of Stockholm syndrome at the moment in, in our exam system. Um, and and I, I, it, it 
reminds me of the fact that we seem to be drawn to these extraordinary binaries you know especially right right now schools are going to either be open or closed exams are either going to go ahead or they're not and the idea that there might be some kind of compromise between those two things just seems to be incapable you know people seem to be incapable of thinking about it exams in themselves are not all bad but we have to recognize that they are flawed you know they're not a perfect solution even in a normal year when when the algorithm with with Ofqual went wrong last year, it was partly because they tried to build into that process the assumption that forty percent of kids would underperform, because in any normal year, forty percent of kids underperform. And so, but they underperform because their dog died, or they broke up with their girlfriend, or they had hay fever, or they were really, you know, just their parents had a, getting divorced or whatever. And so, you, you they had to try and build in this kind of guess of who might have been affected by these things. I mean, I know it wasn't as, as, as clear and obvious as that, but that's effectively what they were doing. So we accept every single year that 40% of kids won't get the opportunity to show what they're capable of. And I think that's extraordinary that we just tolerate that. And then we have a system where Ofqual's own research showed that up to 50%, 51%, I think, in, in history of exam papers were not marked correctly. They did that research, I think, in 2006 and 2016 and 17. And there's apparently some new research that showed that only 3% of papers were given the same mark that the chief examiner would have given them. So there isn't even the reliability of, of marking that we can fall back on. So to say that they are somehow more accurate or a better representation of what children can achieve is just false. But then, you know, they are quite handy in other ways, like in terms of removing bias and various other things. So I just think we ought to have a conversation around, is it possible to have another model or at least a, a variety of models um, that allow for perhaps you know, triple moderation, there's internal school moderation, there's local moderation, there's national moderation, um, so that you get some kind of credibility and reliability around results. But of course, that means schools have got to be collaborative. If you've got local moderation and you have a competitive system, that's going to create some problems. Um, so uh, there are so many things and so many possibilities we could be considering that get shut down because of our adherence to either being for or against exams. Um, I know that in the current situation, time is short, but this could have been discussed last June. It, we could have been hitting the ground running in September and it hasn't happened. And so now what we're getting is almost a panicked response of people going, <gasps> You can't cancel the exams. Predominantly, the people saying that are the ones who haven't had year 11 out on about six weeks of self-isolation so far this year. Um, and, you know, we have got a competitive model and I can see some schools would benefit quite, quite significantly from the idea that other schools had lost six weeks of teaching. Um, I, I just think we're, the binary is, is the problem. And, and I think we... I, I talked about it, you know, years ago when I said when we're thinking about children's aspiration, we have to remember that it's very difficult to imagine a life that you haven't experienced. And if you haven't met people who do certain jobs, how are you supposed to know that those jobs exist? And the same is true of education. If we become fixed in the way this is the way things are, it becomes very difficult for us to conceptualise how things might be different. And in England, we have a particularly constrained system, so we don't even know what's going on in Belgium or Wales or New Zealand or you know 
So I think the, the lid needs to be lifted on that and we need to have open and frank and imaginative conversations, diverse conversations about possibilities rather than just digging trenches and lobbing insults at each other across no man's land because that's how it feels at the moment. Yes. So so I think that the, as far as I understand it, one of the main strands of, of like defence, if you like, for why we should, for example, stick to exams next year is that people believe strongly that exams are more reliable um, than teacher assessments um, and that especially for disadvantaged kids um, that, you know, that, that it's somehow because they're blind, because they're marked blindly, that, that you know, there, there's been research, hasn't there? There was some research done at the IOE recently that teachers tend to mark down kids with regional accents, for example. And so I think that there's a, a large part of the resistance to exploring alternatives is that people think, well, these things have been looked at in the past and we think that exams are the are the least... Somebody described it the other day a little bit like Winston Churchill talked about democracy. It's like they're the worst thing we've got apart from everything, every other method we've ever tried. So mm. I think that that would probably be, you know, an argument to, to, to stick to what we know, if you like. Um, but I know that you talked about this in, in that talk that you gave at the RSA. You talked about that there's a, a blind belief that exams are more reliable than teacher assessment. And it mm. seems that there are other methods that you talk about. Can you explain a bit, a little bit about this idea of triple moderation? What is that and how might it work in practice? Well, so I, I guess it goes back to, you know, to the days where we had, I, I remember teaching a GCSE, for example, that was 100% teacher assessed. So, but it wasn't that I just went into my GCSE, it was a drama course, but I think also there was an English course that offered the same option. Um, it wasn't just that I went into my class and randomly allocated the marks. I, I had, I did the marking and because a lot of it was practical, I had visitors from other schools coming in and observing the practical. And then we submitted the written work and my written records. And we sat around a table, maybe 10 of us from different schools studying the same syllabus and we compared each other's work and we moderated the grades up and down so there was my internal moderation that was done within the department that was the first level of moderation and the second level of moderation was a local consortium of moderators and then we submitted our consortium grades to the exam board and they compared that on a national level now i don't think there's you know it's it might be a little bit uh, you know, a little bit time consuming, but it's certainly rigorous. It's certainly more rigorous than a snapshot of what one child did on one day, uh, marked by one examiner. Uh, and and you've got then protections and safety nets in the system. And what it is no co more complicated than what key stage two teachers do with the writing moderation for primary anyway. That's that's what happens there. So. I think that's one way around, particularly for subjects that perhaps have more subjective content. Uh, you know, and I, I, I do have a degree of sympathy with the idea, you know, when, when Ofqual did that research, the maths and physics papers, for example, were marked fairly accurately. So why not have a horses for courses system where some subjects are examined by, you know, exam and some mm. subjects aren't. But I, th I think there are so many ways of putting safety nets into the system and checks and balances into the system and still having a kind of trust in the professional nature of teachers um 
that, that, that it's worth giving it a go. I think, it, is it Germany that has all teacher assessment up to the point at which they do university entrance exams? And, and, and America, I think, is, is the same, apart from, you know, when they do the the application to university and they do the SAT paper or whatever it is, which, whichever one they choose, up to that point, the teachers grade the papers and your high school certificate comes from teachers graded papers. Yeah, that's what I understood the, the Canadian system uses as well. But yeah, you're right, there are alternatives. And so... And it, and it seems quite hilarious, really, that like you were saying, that there's that there's that there's unfairness baked in that that forty percent of kids underperform, and that's not that's a separate thing to the the kids who fail, but that just a certain amount of kids underperform, and, and so that ra- rather than thinking how can we fix that, they just think okay, so we're going to create an algorithm to reproduce that unfairness this year. It's sort of funny if it wasn't so tragic and it didn't have such profound impacts, you know that 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 two-week period before they did the u-term in the summer it felt like they couldn't have caused more chaos if Mm. they if they'd have if they'd have gone out of their way to think about it and as you say you know exam marking is notoriously unreliable and we've known this for a long time there was that study Wilmot et al did a study didn't they Mm. about um how it's just wildly unreliable that you know i've seen you know exam papers being sent back and coming back with like twenty percent difference, and that is in a, that is within science. And you're like, how can yeah. how can there be a twenty percent variation in you know mm. whether you balanced an equation correctly or not? You know, mm. but so we we sort of we understand that these unfairnesses are are absolutely you know baked into the exam model, but we seem to sort of accept them as being somehow fair to disadvantaged kids. Um, without without seeming like you say to want to explore alternatives mm. yeah I, I i think that's true and, and there's a there's certainly a way of developing a blind moderation and um, check at a, lo- a local and national level that would mitigate some of the potential for teacher bias but i i also think you know we we forget about that tail end of kids we forget about the kids who the, a, a guillotine comes down at the pass mark the magic guillotine and and they are sacrificed to the system. And I don't see why we can't have ultimately some kind of system that recognizes the achievements of children rather than the failures of children. I, I just think we look at it all the wrong way. Um, yeah. and, and and that, you know, creates so many problems for society uh, as, as those children move on into adulthood. Absolutely. I, this is something that I feel so strongly about, this idea that, that something like I think it's thirty-two percent of kids will get grades one to three um, in the new one to nine system, which by definition is a fail because if you don't get four, then you have to resit it, and so and that's just not okay. Like we, if you if you if you sort of take a step back and look at this as a whole system, we sort of have a machine that's churning out failure. Like that's what we've mm. built. Um, mm. And and the you know Diane Ray's work around you know the the impact that that word failure has and we assess kids repeatedly you know the impact that that has on children's sense of first of all their ability so within science I studied this a while ago it affects their ability to think about themselves positively within the context of science but then over time it starts to affect their sort of their global sense of self worth they've just it sort of chips away at them every time there's a there's a there's a an assessment and they come back with a low mark every time they are referred to as being in the bottom set so this fear of failure is a massive problem and it seems like we're not really looking to 
to address that wider systemic inequality. People are talking about wanting to improve you know, outcomes for, for, for kids, but we don't seem to be recognising that if one school works really, really hard and gets better results, the way that the algorithms work out, you know, how many kids pass or fail each year means that we're in a zero-sum game here and the, some kids will pass and that will be at the expense of other kids. Um, and we need, to, we need to zoom out and think about things in a much more holistic way. And it doesn't seem, yeah, to, it doesn't seem to me that it's actually that hard to think of alternatives. I know that people talk about, you know, it's often quite misunderstood, I think, the conversation around norm-referenced um, grades versus criterion-referenced grades. And I read a thing a while ago saying that people really tried apparently very hard a couple of decades ago to really try to make criterion-referenced assessments work. And for whatever reason, I've never fully been able to get to the bottom of why it's such a, just a logistically difficult thing to do. But it doesn't, it just doesn't seem to me that it would be that hard. You know, you, you were talking about music grades earlier. Like, mm. and music grades work in a really nice way in that, first of all, you don't have to take them. Like, you didn't take them. You can, I'm, you know, I'm mm. pretty good at the piano. I never, I never sat my grades. And that's an interesting thing to recognise, that, you know, you don't have to assess things in order for people to learn things. And some of the work mm. that Jay McTie has done over in the States is that, and I, it was my own experience as well in the learning to learn curriculum, is that when you take grading away, some people think that you need grades in order to motivate kids to work. But when you take grades away, you often find that kids are a lot more motivated to work. It's a very counterintuitive finding, but it's been found quite reliably. Well, I, I think many teachers recognise the kid who says, just tell me what I need to do to pass the exam. I'm not interested in this diversion, that idea, this project, I'm not interested in the enhancements to the curriculum. Just tell me what I need to do to pass the exam. Take the exam away and the rest of it becomes more enticing. I, I think that there's, you know, there's a massive conversation to be had here, but we, we shoot ourselves in the foot because if you write off 30% of kids every single year, you breed resentment. You yeah. breed resentment for the system, the feeling that school let you down, the feeling that teachers were against you, you know, whatever. And I think a significant proportion of people go out into the world feeling that resentment. And then we see it appearing on social media. Why all the teacher bashing? Why the assumption that teachers are lazy and in it for themselves? I'm pretty sure that people don't really think that, but they want to have a jab back at the system that they feel let them down. And, and so we don't do ourselves any favours as a society, certainly not as a profession, if that's what we're doing. And, you know, I go back to that experience of staring out of that history classroom window and looking at the lads doing mechanics. They were mostly lads or a couple of girls, but, you know, they, they were experiencing school that was giving them an opening into a future career. They were experiencing a school that uh, showed them possibilities outside of an academic curriculum. And we might criticise the sorting of children amongst, you know, into vocational and academic. But if we had a mixture of those things, I think we'd see a lot less resentment. I think we'd see a lot more skills, um, you know, being being sent out into the world. We've It's all well and good for a minister like Michael Gove to stand up and say every child should access to have access to an academic education. Every child should have the opportunity to apply to Oxford, to aspire to it. But the reality is there aren't enough places. And the reality is the system cuts off, you know, they could all get 99% or above and the system would still slice off the bottom tail end there and sort them. So that rhetoric is completely meaningless in our current system. 
And the fact is the world needs mechanics and plumbers and, you know, all the other kinds of people and cleaners and care workers and all the other people who are highly skilled and know what they're doing, but don't learn that in school. Absolutely. Um, And like you say, you know, there's there's such a waste of talent, isn't there? And such a waste of just a waste, you know, with the linear system where you're just giving kids one shot and that's it. And and they're not able to, if they're, if they're not able to, to perform, like you say, for whatever reason it might be at that in that May or June of the final year of year 11, the idea that we're just going to force every kid through that tiny little bottleneck and that that acts as a sort of sorting hat as to what kind of life you can expect afterwards is just so wasteful and and so blinkered and un- unnecessary and creates such a lot of stress and it's not just the kids who are in that 30% who fail the kids who you know who get AAs and a B and then go away and self harm because they feel like they've somehow failed like this this creates problems at all levels mm. um and it doesn't like i said it doesn't what i want to do is to is to be quite solution focused in this in this podcast and to think about practical alternatives and just to come back to that music grades thing for a second. So the idea being that, so when you do your piano grade one, and there are there are sort of criteria that are attached to a grade one, and you can have a pass fail, or you can have grades, you can pass, you know, grade one with pass merit of distinction, say. Um, and then you can, when, when you got them ready, you move on to your, to your grade two and so on. It doesn't seem to me that it would be that difficult to replicate that in, say, maths, where you sort of have a grade one paper that kids fail or pass, and that when they when they're good and ready, they move on to 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 do, do their level two one. It doesn't feel like that would be a hard thing to sort out. It might mean that we would have to embrace some stage not age ways of grouping kids together, and that doesn't seem to be an entirely bad idea. But it doesn't feel like it would be that hard. It seems like all that would be necessary would be for the exam boards to start producing, for example, grade one maths papers and grade two maths papers and so on. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've I've always been of the opinion that you should separate maths and English out into functional skills and academic. And so, you know, the I would rather see kids being expected if if you if you're going to have a suite of GCSE exams, then have a basic functional skill in numeracy and a functional skill in English. Can you calculate what you're going to need to be able to calculate to get through the basic things in your life, like paying your taxes, getting a mortgage, whatever? Can you write and communicate in a way that's going to get you a job, but you don't necessarily have to be a poet or a, you know, a story writer? And if we can tick those off as having been achieved, then the rest should be optional. I want to choose to do maths. I want to choose to do the more, more advanced maths because I enjoy it in the same way that I might choose to do art. I might choose to do history. I might choose to do geography. And I think the way we've conflated the academic and the functional in maths and English in particular has been really damaging because what it means is the children who might reach a relatively functional level in both are still in danger of failing the GCSE and they shouldn't be in danger of failing the GCSE. Um, and, and like you say, if it was a stage, not age model, that, that would create some difficulties. But, you know, if, if you have gone through things like exam 
exams in music or qualifications in coaching in sports or even your driving test, you walk into that waiting room and you don't look around going, oh, how embarrassing. I'm doing my grade four and there's an eight-year-old doing it and I'm 15. And, you know, but there's a 25-year-old doing it and there's a 50-year-old doing it. You, You don't really have that reflection. You just, you're all just going into the same exam. So there'd have to be a shift in mindset and that would have to be sold to parents as well, you know, but I think it's certainly possible. It's just the unwillingness to engage with these possibilities I find quite frustrating. The the, the constant refrain of it's either this or that and there are no ways in between. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there's going to be... I mean, I think another upside of the the recent reforms that were done under Gove... Um, is that in the, the, it led us to, to more innovation? You know, we had schools that were that were able to operate as free schools, according to their own you know vision of what education should be for. And and you know maybe we're going to be able to have schools that are going to start experimenting with alternative ways of assessing kids because we can have schools that are acting outside of the national curriculum and so on. But I, but do you think like I I remember reading something from Peter Hyman because he I mean he set up School Twenty One and in terms of innovation that's been fantastic, but he still says he's massively constrained in what he can achieve in that school because of the assessment system that we currently have and until that changes, didn't he sign one of the wasn't he one of the signatories of the let the letter that went out recently asking for reform of GCSEs, yeah. um, but 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 what I think and it's quite canny of a government to say, here is choice, here is the potential for innovation, we're going to restructure the system so anyone can set up a school. And if you set up a free school or an academy, you can sit outside of the national curriculum, knowing full well that it will be the tests at the end of it that that limit that innovation. And, And I think apart from the odd school that has popped up, like School 21 or like XP, is it XP School in Doncaster? Apart from those, and the thinking school, I think there is as well, isn't there? But but the vast majority have actually just become identikit schools, the same behaviour policy, the same, you know, curriculum, the same knowledge organisers. And and I don't think we've seen anything like the kind of innovation we could have seen. And I think that's quite deliberate because if you make the exam system the be-all and end-all and you hold people accountable for the results in that exam system, people won't step too far away from, from the norm. Yeah, you're right. You're right. When yeah, they they were talking about you're going to have a lot more freedom, but it's freedom to achieve exactly the same goals. And so, um, mm. and the accountability system is very strong. I think maybe we need to take a step back and and think. You know that Simon Sinek book, Start with Why. The idea that you need to really understand. There's a really good. He did a TED talk. This idea that you need to understand why something needs to, to change before you start getting into conversations about you know the technicalities of, of triple marking and, and functional and, and academic um you know strands of, of assessment and i think that they're all really good conversations but i think that there's you know a need to understand why it is that we need to change exams and and the, the, the sort of the impact that exams have on our culture and there was an idea that a professor that i went to talk to years ago sort of said about how schools are much more interested you know exams are about doing better than aren't they it's a competition like we said it's a zero sum game and the hidden t- takeaway from that is that is that that education is 
a that it's a competition that it's something that you can that you can sort of win or lose to some greater extent um but also that it's a transaction that it's something that you sort you know i know that lots of teachers especially in universities now that we've got tuition fees the kids are just like get me an a like i've paid my money like you need to do more work to get me an a and they they expect to just be given something for this and and that's that's a message that's come through this idea that education is something that's um, like a, a commodity, that grades are a commodity. And I think that if you if you look at some of the examples of the, you know, the people who are the winners in that system are the ones who are better at competing than others. So we end up with a society where people who are inherently sort of competitive and therefore quite sort of self-interested and more, more interested in being better than other, rather than better with other people, you end up with lots of people in public life who behave in incredibly selfish sort of nepotistic ways and you know we've seen lots of this recently with examples of corruption and you know lots of money being filtered off for ppe contracts from dubious people mm -hmm. who don't seem to have any experience in this world do you remember a few years ago there's a politician who described himself as a cab for hire you know when bankers trash the economy and then ramp up the scale of their already obscene bonuses that they've made from gambling with other people's money you know, when we've got some, you know, heads, executive heads of, of academy chains who are paying themselves insane amounts of taxpayers' money because they say, well, I'm worth it, you know. It's, it's sort of, it's no surprise, really, given the nature of the education system, which emphasises rewarding comp competition rather than collaboration. It's almost like it could never have been any other way. And if we mm -hmm. want to, I know that one of the things that you're really interested in is imagining more, you talk about imagineering, not you thinking about more positive possible futures. If we're going to create a society that's more about recognizing that we're all interconnected and that there's, you know, we're all a part of each other's stories here and that actually exams, you know, are contributing to this very sort of selfish um, mindset that we see replicated throughout the world. Um, I think that that's a, that's, that to me is a really strong argument for why we should start to think about assessing kids in a different way because what is what gets assessed is what gets done in schools yeah. and that's yeah. one of the problems that we've had so much with oracy education because it's quite logistically difficult to assess speaking and listening because it doesn't leave a paper trail and that's yeah. I think largely why it's been undervalued and under underrepresented in education. But we've we've got a system that values what they, what it can measure, and and a lot of the things that are valuable can't be measured. Um, so that's our first that's our first mistake, if you like, that we we only think about assessing the things that we can easily assess, and then everything else just gets left to chance. But I, you know, we and this sounds a bit sort of doomsday. Uh, scenario but the fact is that the planet is hurtling or we as a species are hurtling towards a, a point at which we are going to have to radically change every aspect of our lives and yeah. we're going to have to do it pretty rapidly and I, I, I feel like what we're seeing now is a feeding frenzy of people who recognize that but want to get out of it what they can before it all goes wrong and you know and, and I'm I feel like some of those people you just mentioned, the profiteers, the kind of cronyism, the passing on of favours is, is like a crowd of seagulls after the last chips on the beach, you know what I mean? And it's, uh, and, and what's going to be left 
is is a huge problem for our young people to sort out. And apart from the economic and the social and the kind of commercial aspects of that, in terms of the education system, we have to be equipping children with the skills they need to think about possibilities, to think about change and alternatives, because otherwise we're just throwing them to the wolves. Yes. And there's also, there's, there's that letter. Do you remember the letter? I think that you used it in your, um, in your talk in the RSA about, about educated Eichmanns. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. The idea yeah. that there was somebody who had been in a concentration camp who was saying that they saw what nobody should ever witness. They talked about gas chambers being built by people with engineering degrees, children being poisoned by educated physicians. And like Franz Harbour, is it Fritz or Franz Harbour, the guy, the Harbour process, you know, he got a Nobel Prize for for figuring out how to make ammonia out of out of the air and the water. But he spent most of his time trying to figure out how to poison people. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, the idea that just because people are educated and that they've got qualifications, it doesn't make them good people, you know. And that, that's what something that I think we really need to recognize that, that if we turn education into a transaction, that's just about acquiring qualifications because it buys you something rather than that because it's for some greater good that yeah. um that you know we're totally misunderstanding what an education should be about i mean look at the conversations around what degrees are worth and and the the worth the value of a degree being attached to the salary that comes after it you know that i that to me is a fundamental flaw in thinking um, when we start to see academic education only in terms of the monetary value it brings afterwards. And it's an inevitable consequence of tuition fees, um, because as soon as you feel like your education is an investment, you want a return. That's that's the society we've lived in, invest return. Um, whereas if your education is about acquiring wisdom, um, experiences about being part of a culture um, and and understanding what it is to be human, then if that's the return, it's entirely differently. But if you indifferent, but you can't then be saying we want you to get into forty or fifty thousand pounds worth of debt in order to be able to do that. Because at the end of the day, people want to be able to pay their mortgages and have families and live and and have a reasonable standard of of life. So. There are all kinds of complex connected problems we need to solve. But I think ultimately when I'm working with teachers, I say, I I have this conversation. What's the difference between an educated, intellectually qualified person and somebody who is wise? And we break down those attributes a little bit. You never, ever get a wise person coming up to you saying, hello, I'm wise and introducing themselves to you in that way. But you often get people coming up and telling you that they got a first class honours degree in mathematics from Oxford or whatever. So there's a degree of humility there. There is the capacity to understand multiple perspectives. There's the capacity to uh, anticipate unintended consequences to your actions. So a wise person would never introduce league tables into the education system because they'd have anticipated the impact on house prices. Um, you know, you would a wise person reflects on experience and knowledge and in order to to be able to reflect on experience you've got to have a wide range of experiences so if we start on picking that difference and then we say okay so what does an education system that fosters wisdom rather than academic qualification an academic qualification can be part of that 
but it's a byproduct, not an end product of the process. Then you get a very different conversation happening amongst teachers about the experience that children have in the classroom. So I think we're going to move to the to the next level of this conversation, which is linked to what we were just talking about, which is things that can happen at the at the school or leadership level. And you mentioned this earlier about the idea of social mobility and what a sort of a double edged sword that that sort of phrase is and the way that it sort of serves to empty towns out of people who are talented, that social mobility somehow means that if you're from a working class background, that's basically bad. And you're, you're like, this is your golden education is your golden ticket to a better life with B days and maybe, you know, like live in a different city. And yeah, so um, let's talk about that social mobility. I think that's well that's rooted I think in my in the fact that I grew up uh, was born and grew up in Burnley and now I've, I live in Oldham and my husband for the last 30 years has worked at the old Oldham Sixth Form College um, and both towns are very similar and Bury is not in, entirely different either um, I think what's happened as a result of that emptying out of the manufacturing the industries the mining the cotton mills whatever is that they haven't been replaced with anything else. And so the idea of aspiration has started to become linked to escape. And so that if you're a child in in a school in one of these northern towns, the narrative that you're fed almost like quite discreetly, but still quite powerfully, is if you get this education and you get these qualifications, you can get out of here. Um, you can go to a university a long way away. You might never come back. Um, and that that sense of you're a bit sad if you stay in the place where you grew up has started to become quite endemic in our society. And that's not even, you know, getting to grip, talking, going back to the idea of what about the kids who fail and who stay, what opportunities exist for them. And yet within all of these places, there are some really interesting things happening. You know, little initiatives like Oldham's now developing almost like a mini um, Eden project uh, biome, a kind of, you know, a kind of climate change experiment, if you like. Um, And there, there, there are plans to try and do things in the town which require qualified people, require expertise. Um, But it's really hard to get people to come and work in these places because they've been emptied out of so many things. And I I feel like it's, um, there's a beetle that eats away at the hollow of a palm tree Um, and and the palm tree stays looking really intact. And then one day it just falls apart because the core of it's been eaten out. And I think that's what we've done to our, to many of our Northern towns. We've eaten them out. And what's left is a combination of frustration and resentment um, that people are either don't understand us or that they want to leave us. Whereas I think if you build your communities from within, so I'd rather see social growth than social mobility as an aim where children are absolutely rooted in their communities. They learn to find the places because they're introduced to them, taken to them, and those experts are brought into school. 
where innovation is happening, where possibility is happening. And they see that rather than having to leave their place, there's an opportunity for them to grow it. And that can be getting involved on youth councils, getting involved politically. It can be contributing to charity work. It can be um, adding ideas to innovative uh, practices and businesses that are bubbling up there are all kinds of possibilities but that requires schools reaching out to the community and pulling the community in and also showing that children can be of service to their community and and I think you know when I talk about curriculum of hope that's the beating heart of it it's how do we build our communities yeah Okay, and so let's let's think about some practical examples. So you, you talked about the Chester Zoo project earlier, which I think is a really good example of this. We're talking about this at the level of schools and school leadership because it feels to me that this is something that school leaders can can address a, go a long way to addressing. We don't need this to become some government initiative that schools and classroom teachers as well can can help to foster those links with local communities. Can you think of any examples? Um, that you that you're aware of or stuff that you've included in your book about how to engage what can school leaders who are listening to this do practically to engage and to build that social growth model there are some really simple things and a lot of them are embedded in the Gatsby benchmarks the Gatsby um, you know the, the careers education benchmarks that schools are all supposed to adhere to now um, part of it is giving you know offering the narratives in your own subject as a teacher of the career opportunities and possibilities that exist you know in in your area but i think we you take that a step further and you link up with the people who have your subject in their careers who are local and you bring them in and you we we reintroduce work experience into schools i think it was a travesty that that got you know became optional um but then there are other connections like you know i do i do a whole unit with with young children around uh, an old lady who lives in a house by the sea and they get to know her and care about her and then they realize her house is falling off the edge of a cliff and they have to relocate her to a care home um and and her apart from the immediate problem of you know her house falling off the edge of the cliff which leads us into coastal erosion and looking at that um there's the issue of elderly loneliness now i can teach that through a story and it can all be really nice and we can learn about coastal erosion and elderly loneliness but unless we then make a connection with elderly people in our community it's kind of pointless because we're not doing anything to solve the problem we've identified so that's the crux of it what can children do to solve the problems we're identifying in the curriculum so setting up relationships with help the aged having a coffee morning where the children get together with elderly people once a month and going into care homes or at least sending zoom messages or video messages into care homes right now anything that breaks down that problem that shows that the school is embedded within its community is is powerful gathering oral histories and oral narratives from those people so that you see how the community used to be different how it used to be more united and how you know things things perhaps felt a little bit more positive so that's just one example and that's pretty easy to do it doesn't require a massive you know connection or any expense it's just imagination yes Um, and there are so many things we can do like that love it Thank you. Um, And now let's move on to the teacher or classroom level. And this idea that you talk about, you mentioned again earlier, this idea of political, sorry, pedagogical activism. 
Um, it occurred to me uh, when I was thinking about this earlier that some people might well recoil at that phrase, at the very idea. They might just say, like, it's not your job to be an activist, that you're a public servant and you should do what politicians tell you to do. And if you don't like it, you can vote them out in five years' time. Um, what's your answer to that? What's your what's your thinking around pedagogical activism, um, and what does it actually look like in practice? Well, I think I think those people would be confusing political activism with pedagogical activism for a start. Um, you know, I'm not kind of rampaging around a classroom trying to create political uh, beings, although I might, you know, secretly want to. That's that's not what it's about. Um, I think we have to bear in mind, and I, I'm, I there's a history lesson that I've done with te- with uh, pupils before that looks at a page from a textbook in Nazi Germany where the teacher is teaching children how to recognize a Jew by things like the shape of the nose and the eyes and the lips and so on and so on. it's horrific but it's it's a real example of what teachers were expected to teach children and it's an extreme example but it's where education goes if you have the belief that your job is to implement government policy and that most of us, I would hope, would draw the line, um, but would we when it's a matter of life and death? So I think when I get a curriculum document, it's my job to interpret it and to interpret it in different ways. That's not just to say, do I agree with it or not? Because sometimes you just don't have a choice. But it's how do I present this to children? And that is always the teacher's choice. So you can. You know, if I, I, I often give an example when I'm talking to teachers about it, what if a government minister said to you, we have to teach apples, <laughs> we, we have to teach apples and apples appear on the curriculum and we say um, we, we get the cold dead curriculum document that's been produced by some civil servant and it's broken down into objectives like children have to identify three different types of apple. They have to identify that apples grow in temperate climates and so on and so forth, maybe 10 of them, put a test at the end. As a teacher, you get that document and you have a choice. You either say, okay, objective one is on the is on the whiteboard. Here's success criteria. We're going to taste five different types of apples. We're going to sort them into colour and taste and texture and whatever else it is. And then we'll tick that one off. And then the next lesson, we'll look at temperate climates and we'll tick that one off. Or, you know, you might get some teachers going, how, do, how can I fit this into a narrative, a grand narrative that is going to give children a deeper understanding of the world? And a mathematician might slice that apple in half and might say, do you know what, we'll look at patterns in nature, we'll look at Fibonacci sequence, we'll look at golden ratio, we can pull apples into a much bigger topic here. A chemist might say, is it true that an apple a day keeps the doctor away? And let's look at things like amino acids and peptides and vitamin C and all those and fiber and the impact that it has on human body. And are some apples better for us than others? And what is a balanced diet? And they make it bigger and part of a whole. Or another teacher might look at it and say, you know, we were doing Victorians last week and we went on that trip and there was this, uh, 
apple on the teacher's desk because they, they told us, didn't they, children, that, you know, the, the, the child would give an apple to their teacher as a gift. What's that about? Is it about knowledge? Is it a thank you for knowledge? And where does that come from? Does it come from the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? And if so, let's go back to Genesis and have a look at that story. And we notice that there's no mention of an apple at all. It just says a fruit from the tree of knowledge. And in Islam, that fruit is a pomegranate. So how does our climate, our geography impact on our social and cultural and religious icons? And then how do they become interpreted? Because it's not until the Renaissance artists started depicting that story and you know, presenting us with a suspiciously white looking Eve plucking an apple from the tree of knowledge that, that those two things became connected. And then apple becomes synonymous with knowledge and knowledge is power and it's also dangerous. So we have the apple appearing in our stories with Snow White. We have um, Alan Turing injecting an apple. Now, suddenly, I think apples are really interesting. And I can tell so many stories about apples to the children that they'll find them interesting. And along the way, we can tick off the five different types of apple or the temperate climates or whatever it is. But we've done so much more. And to me, that's pedagogical activism because it's getting to the heart or the core, if you want to like bit of a pun um of of what is going to really get children excited about learning what's going to make them ask bigger questions about the world and it's not necessarily political it can be but it's about you taking charge of the curriculum and breathing life into it and that's the active part of the activism yes i mean it's amazing the the you know the the way that you describe that i think is is incredible i'm trying to think about how we can I mean, that's a that's a very very rich example. The idea of apples, um, but I, I imagine that there might be some teachers who are thinking like this sounds really interesting, but I I don't really know how to replicate that, because you're somebody who's had had a lot of expertise who's working in this different way, and you worked with Dorothy Hethcote all those years ago. You've been thinking about education in a very different, much more expansive, interconnected way than lots of other people have. Is there a way that you could that you can think to sort of to break down? I know that at the back of the book at the and teach notes from the front line, it ends with there's a there's a, a what do you call it? A man, a manifesto for pedagogical activists. And there's, a, there's some bullet points of the sorts of things, the sorts of a- actions, and some of them are sort of attitudes as well. Some of them are about, you know, refusing to compete with colleagues, but seeking instead to collaborate, uh, valuing children's happiness as much of their academic success and um, questioning and I think questioning is at a big heart of this the the heart of this it's about just sort of trying to instill a sense of wonder and that the teacher isn't presenting information as a fait accompli but they're presenting information in such a way that 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 education is a big sort of adventure where we don't know where it's going to lead can you sort of is there a way that you could distill down this idea of pedagogical activism in a way that people might be able to to get a hold of and think Okay, I can think. I, I think that if I if I think about this particular sort of through through this lens as I'm planning this this module of work on whatever it might be, that I think that I can imbue it with some of this sense of pedagogical activism. It's it's hard to distill because it'll be different. It'll mean different things to different people. But I think it goes back to what you said earlier. It's finding the why. The first thing you have to do is find the why. Why, why am I even in the classroom? Why are these children in this room? Why is this on the curriculum? Why is it important? Why does it matter? 
absolutely everything we teach children was considered by import, important by somebody at some point. So we have to get to the core of what that is. And, and some of that is about finding the real life application. Some of it is about finding the interesting big questions. I think questions are everything in education. I think they are the single most important thing that a teacher has in their repertoire, asking good questions and encouraging the generation of good questions. But I, I, I think as well, it, it's about finding your authentic self and what is it that you are as a teacher and then modifying your practice so that what children see is congruent authenticity and they know that what you're doing is something you believe in and I know that that's you know in many parts of our work filling in spreadsheets or whatever it is that's not possible but when we're present in a classroom with children that congruence is really important and that's to me is an act of activism because it's standing up and being yourself in a system that is trying to make you like everybody else Um, that's the nutshell of it and how you imaginatively interpret the curriculum might be one act but also that not running, I mean, we don't, we thankfully most places don't do graded lesson observations anymore, but it, it would be something as simple as not running out into the corridor after a graded lesson observation and shouting your grade out. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> it would be a real, a real active, active pedagogical activism would be not even asking for the grade in the first place. And, yeah. you know, I never asked for grades in observations because I just said, tell me something I need to work on and tell me something I did well. That's all I want to know. Um, but it, it's, it's small acts of resistance against a system that is trying to make you conform to a homogenous norm. Um, but without attempt, you know, we're not trying to break that system because I don't think an individual teacher on their own can. They haven't got the capacity for it. One of the reasons I left teaching was so that I could shout about it and try and shake it a little bit. But in the classroom, you know, the, the, the job you've got to do means that the changes you make might be slight, but they're still significant. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally, that, that absolutely tallies with my experience. I, I, I really struggled in my first sort of couple of years of, of teaching science because I just thought that my job, I did have a sort of a technician's view of what a teacher was and I thought that my job was just to like deliver the, the curriculum and to try to consistently implement the school's behaviour policy, which wasn't very well worked out. So that was quite a challenge. Um, and it was only when I was think I was in my second year and a, a teacher came into our department as an NQT who was one of those mavericks who you were talking about who just got it and who really led with his personality and was was very sort of larger than life character but was very funny and was quite unpredictable in the sorts of things that he said to the kids um, and they absolutely adored him and it really made me realize that 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 was what I needed to do, that I needed to, like you say, you talk about finding your authentic teacher self and to be real in some sense and to 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 put some of your personality into your teaching. Um, and to, especially in a secondary school, because like you said, it's, you know, you don't see the kids very much. You see them three, three hours a week and, you know, you've got a lot to cover in those three hours and your attention is divided by a factor of 30 really hard to to build meaningful connections with those with those young people because just the the logistics of it and the the more that you can be yourself and the more that they can recognize you as a as a a real human being um Mm. that you know it just makes your life so much easier and it makes it start to feel a lot more 
meaningful what you're doing. And like you say, mm. you know, you're still covering the curriculum. It's not like you're going off piste and just making stuff up or taking them mm. out on the school field for the whole lesson. But it's about it's about like you say finding that balance in a way that that, mm. that works for you in your in your context. Yeah, and there are caveats to that. For example, uh, you know, I'd want to be my authentic teacher self, but when I have that class where my heart sinks at the thought of teaching them, you know, I can think of a particular year nine class I had once where I wouldn't sleep the night before I taught them because I, you know, the, the the experience was so hard. Mm. But not one child in that class would ever have known that because I treated them as if they were my favorites. And, um, and that is a pretense, that's an act, and that's not authentic. But I think sometimes there are certain things we have to do that are uh, really important, really important in establishing that trust. Absolutely. And sometimes it can take that lack of, you sort of fake it till you make it, don't you? It can take that yeah. sort of a fake smile for you actually to realize that there is some genuine warmth in that smile and that you know mm. it changes it changes the the dynamic and i didn't have any magical breakthroughs with them you know when i got to when i managed to scrape my way to the end of the year having tried absolutely every trick i had up my sleeve with them and still feeling like i wasn't getting anywhere um you know i i walked off and practically threw a party at the prospect that i wouldn't have to teach them again the next year and yet in year 10 they're all standing outside my office going hi miss we loved your lessons last year oh we missed you and I'm like what there was no evidence for any of that you made my life a hell for a year but now suddenly it was amazing and and you know you can't you, you just have to take roll with the blows really and you can't predict unpredictable adolescents they are the puberty and adolescent is adolescence is brutal I think we all know because we've been through it but sometimes I think we forget how brutal that is and how their priorities shift towards their peers and how that impacts on how they interact with adults um but yeah the, the smile fake it until you make it and carry on faking it even if you don't make it is really important because one day it, the penny will drop with them and they'll recognize that effort you made yes yeah Good stuff. Okay, there's one more thing that I would like to to talk about, which um, is a really tough nut to crack. Um, but while we're talking about rethinking education, it seems to me, and I know that you've spoken about this before as well, that probably the main structural obstacle that, that there is to, to real meaningful reform is the five-year electoral cycle and the way that that leads to to essentially sort of tinkering around the edges and quite short-termist thinking and a culture where there's there's endless change that's sort of brought in because you know each secretary of state wants to sort of put their stamp on things and and that change sort of feels like it's almost like an ongoing trauma that you're like you can you never get to to sink your roots and actually feel like you actually like get your head around a particular way of doing things because it just changes continually. Um, and it feels like that leads to all kinds of problems. I wonder if we could just end by talking about that a little bit and thinking about possible ways in which we could think about doing things differently. Mm. Well, yeah, I think it's the the biggest problem in education, that sense of feeling like you have to prove yourself as a new government or as a new minister and that the objective of your role is to get re-elected, which means creating the impression that you've done something important, that you've effected change when in fact 
there might not necessarily have been the need for the change in the first place. So, you know, we, we can see models from around the world what, of what happens when that's not the case. The IB is a great model because it's entirely free of political interference because it's, you know, international. So it's not a government system. And whenever the IB wants to think about changing its structures, it goes through a five year consultation process. And it's, um, you know, the, the change takes time. But there are also international models. I think Singapore, Finland, you know, they looked and said, what does the next 30 or 50 years look like in education? And we'll commit to this. And whoever comes after us will also commit to this. And, and in some ways, it's what the Welsh government are doing now. You know, I think it's quite impressive that they've taken, it's going to have been about seven or eight years by the time it's up and running in classrooms to go through a long process of thinking and planning. And even then, it's coming into primary and key stage three, but it will then lead into thinking about key stage four and beyond. So taking your time, and building consensus is really important. And when you're focused on five-year um, deadlines, that, that just goes. So the only way that can work in our current system, I think, is to devolve some responsibility for education to people who are outside of the political system, whether that's something like the Chartered College or, you know, whatever, that that although politicians will always have some kind of vested interest, particularly around how they spend the money, personally, I think, for example, accountability structures should be the remit of the chartered college. Um, they should appoint the chief inspector if we're going to have a chief inspector, and they should um, come up with a clear set of expectations of what we want from an accountability system. Um, and similarly with curriculum and, and assessment and so on and so forth, that should be cross-party devolved and long-term. And until we have that, we, we're just going to be caught in this, this hamster wheel of repeating mistakes and having the same conversations and seeing our political, our educational views on the same spectrum as our political views, um, which I think, I don't think we should be confusing those. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I wonder about the, just the mechanism by which it would be, you know, you're talking about it being devolved maybe to the Chartered College. I wonder if it could, even if it was just a sort of a select committee type model where you've got more diversity of experience and, and opinions around the table. It seems to me that mm. some select committees do some really interesting, valuable work. They arrive at some really sensible decision making because of that diversity of opinion. Yeah, they, you've got the model right there with the Education Select Committee of a cross party consensual um, approach that's taking more of a long term view, that's gathering like a broad, diverse range of opinion, that's putting lots of things out to consultation, but they have no real power. So I think the, the thing that would have to change for the Education Select Committee is that they become, they, they, they form policy and not just recommend. Um, the problem is the desire for power, you know, ministers don't like get, let, letting go of it. So that's, that's, the rub. that's the difficulty. You know, how much better would the COVID response have been if it had been a cross-party approach or Brexit or anything that's major in a country? But this yeah. party, this polarized party political approach is so damaging. You're right, and it's yeah, and it's not just an education thing. The, the whole idea, like we've known about groupthink, for example, the idea that when you have lots of very like-minded people sitting around a table together, like you have in a in a you know a governmental cabinet, 
you get really bad, weird decision making because of the just the, the sort of the social group dynamics when everybody agrees with each other and that it's, you know, not politically a good idea to disagree with your boss publicly, for example, because that's like career suicide. We've known this for a really long time and we also know how to combat groupthink. Like, for example, make sure that there's a diversity of opinion around the table. Set some ground rules to make sure that people can air their honest views without fear of repercussion and that we're going to have really robust conversations here. Um, this doesn't only apply to, to education governance, certainly. Um, but it does feel like, like, like we, it's not like we don't know the answers. We do have some practical ideas for how things could work differently. Um, we sort of need to collectively imagine and articulate what those ideas are and try to achieve things that we haven't done before. You talk about this before, as well, about having an imaginative education system, a system that tries to do things that we haven't done before rather than reproducing the status quo. And that's really what I want to achieve with this podcast, you know, is to, to create alternative narratives about what education can and should be. So um, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to, to share your thoughts with me. I'd just like to end. So you talk about, you know, this idea of having hopeful narratives about the future. And you, your last book was called A Curriculum of Hope. Uh, do, given all of the problems that we've outlined, and then, you know, there's no shortage of them. Do you feel hopeful for the future of education and indeed for the future of humanity, given that, you know, like the, all we hear is these these narratives around you know ecological collapse and that everything's falling apart at the seams what's what do you honestly feel into when like where are you on that sort of optimistic pessimistic realistic um scale i, th I think we're going to we're going to face significant change and some of that change is going to be quite catastrophic you know in a global perspective but i have a fundamental belief in I suppose, I don't know if it's decency or imagination or innovation or creativity, whatever it is, of human beings to be able to find, to battle their way out of those situations. And I think, you know, we if we look back historically, there has always been, you know, eventually that, that, that weed going through growing through the cracks of concrete of hope and i think that's that's something that's fundamentally human um whether it's been like you know producing a vaccine in record times during a global pandemic or it's been yeah. your communities coming together and delivering food parcels to each other it's you know we we it's a terrible thing that food banks have sprung up across this country in response to austerity, but it's also evidence of human beings just gathering together and finding solutions. We're seeing huge solutions, you know, being sometimes small scale, like just floating farms in Bangladesh that are allowing farmers to deal with flooding, seeing uh, innovations in um, green technologies. And I think eventually all these things will will bear fruit and the best thing we can do in education is to get children wading through difficulty in classrooms but with a focus on com active compassion finding solutions that work and if they have repeated experience of that they're going to go into the world solution focused rather than catastrophe focused um, and I think that's really important 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I know that you're very solution focused as well in the work that you've done. I think that the the book that we talked about a lot today, Notes from the Frontline, is a brilliant articulation. There is some solution focused stuff in there, but I think that it's fair to say that that book is mainly a very brilliant and insightful, lucid articulation of the the problems that we are seeing. Um, and then I know that in your other books, especially in Uncharted Territories and the Curriculum of Hope, that you've got many much more sort of practical, workable solutions that people can can um, take and run with and make sense of. So thank you for that as well. What does the future hold for you? What's on the horizon? Uh, I've no idea. You know, I've, I've like hopped around all my life. I'm like a butterfly going from flower to flower. Um, so I never know. It, it depends on what pops into my inbox. I just, I like thinking about education. I like talking about education. I like going into schools and teaching children, but I don't like all the attendant hassle that goes with that, which is why I, you know, I, I like what I do now. And I'm sorry to teachers for the fact that you have to go with the attendant hassle. But I've never had a plan. I've never really had a plan, not since I decided I wasn't going to be a music teacher anymore. Everything's just kind of happened and I'm quite happy with serendipity. And so we'll see what happens next. Okay, sounds good. Well, once again, thank you so much for spending some time for being my first ever guest. I feel like we've gotten off to a roaring start. Uh, Until the next time. Thank you. It's been lovely to talk to you. Time is a measure.